0: Hey there, welcome to Can't Make This Up. If you're new around here, uh, my name's Kevin, and I get the privilege of sitting down and talking with some really interesting writers and historians uh, and just picking their brain about various topics in history. Uh, In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with a professor from the University of Sussex. His name's David Hendy, uh, and he's written an interesting history of the BBC. Um... The BBC is today, you know, a very well-known international news site. Um, but where did it come from? David and I were going to talk about the founders of the BBC, uh, how it kind of pioneered the new medium of radio, uh, innovative programming uh, for that medium, uh, and kind of the role that it played in becoming this indispensable institution for the UK. Um If you're interested, a couple of uh, recommendations that that I have personally with the BBC. Uh, I really enjoy listening to In Our Time. It's a history podcast uh, where Melvin Bragg sits down with, he gets a roundtable together of various historical experts and they talk about a topic um, for about a half hour or so. I really enjoy that. Uh, Another really good BBC podcast uh, from BBC Radio 4 is called Beyond Belief. Uh, kind of the same premise, uh, except dealing with religion. They'll take a religious topic like uh, like death, for instance, or uh, heaven or salvation, and they'll get together a, uh, you know, like a, like a Catholic priest and then a mom and a, and a rabbi and a round table, and they'll all talk about their different perspectives. Uh, super interesting stuff. So if you're in that kind of vein of things and you, and you want some good quality programming, a couple of really cool BBC podcasts for you. Uh, If you're new around here, uh, please, uh, you know, like and subscribe to the podcast uh, through whatever you're listening to this on. If you're on YouTube, uh, be sure to like and subscribe there uh, so you can see new content when it drops every few weeks. Uh, If you're on social media, I'm at CMTU History on pretty much all the social medias. Uh, And then if you'd like to support the podcast, if you've been listening for a while uh, and you'd like to help me out, produce more episodes, uh, head on over to Patreon. I'm going to be dropping uh, some bonus Q&A from David uh, here tomorrow, uh, so you can check that out. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to help out and support the podcast, that's okay too. No sweat. I'm happy to have you here regardless. So without further ado, here's my interview with David Hendy.
1: the you can't make this up history podcast bringing you strange but true things from the past it's not the average history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the strange
0: You're listening to You Can't Make This Up. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin, and uh, joining me today is uh, David Hendy. David, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? Very good. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your work.
1: Well, uh, I, I suppose I should explain that when it comes to writing a history of the BBC, I do that as both an insider and an outsider. So I'm, I'm an academic historian, and I've spent 25 years or more studying the BBC, writing about the BBC. But before that, I worked for the BBC for seven years. So uh, I I worked as a producer in news and current affairs. Um, And I suppose that informed, I think, I I hope in some level, but that's not too obvious, but fairly subtle, approach I had to writing the history of the BBC, because there, I mean, the BBC is this, in the UK, it's this grand cultural institution, which is very central to British life, and um, because of that, we tend to think of it as a kind of, you know, a grand cultural institution, very formal, um, and I think a lot of people assume that in broadcasting programs are made to order and you know, they're kind of, it's a sort of top-down organization and so on. That didn't match my experience. And in many ways, I wanted to approach the story of the BBC in a way that was less about it as as an institution and more about it as a kind of creative community. And I wanted the program makers' perspective to kind of run like a thread uh, right through the story of the BBC, because uh, you know, from my point of view, um, you know, broadcasting is made by broadcasters. It's it's it is for many years of its history a kind of thoroughly handcrafted thing. And obviously, from the perspective of now in 2022, I mean, broadcasting is a massive industry: television, radio, the internet it's an industry but when it began when the BBC began in 1922 it was a it was a handful of individuals and they had a kind of blank slate and they had to work out as they went along what is this thing broadcasting and and you know getting back to that that idea of what it was like at the beginning I think was really really important and I I had in my approach I suppose the words in my mind of the historian John Eliot. he's not a historian of broadcasting, he's a historian of imperial Spain, but I, he made a really interesting point about what, what's the task of the historian, and he described it like this, I'm going to quote his words, he said, it's about, the task is to enter imaginatively into the life of a society remote in time and place and produce a plausible explanation of why its inhabitants thought and behaved as they did.
0: Ooh, I like that. I like that.
1: Isn't that great? And it's kind of, it's a kind of inclusive, imaginative idea of of history. And I, in a sense, that's the simple task I set myself, is how do I get into this institution and think of it as a kind of community, a society? And why did they do what they did? What was the thinking behind all these programs that have become part of our life? And how did that turn a simple radio organization, if you like, into something that became so important in British society and actually important globally as a broadcasting institution?
0: In, in reading the book, you know, you do feel, I think you did a good job with this because you kind of feel like you're in the broadcast room, you know, at Savoy Hill or, or you know, as it moves along, you, you feel like you're kind of right there with them and, and um, you did a very good job of that.
1: I, I mean, I think, I mean, th- uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, but I, in a way I was helped by one of the main resources of the BBC that was put to my disposal. Now, the BBC, you know, as a, as a grand institution, uh, 100 years old, is both a, a nightmare and a dream for the historian who's researching it. It, I mean, it's a dream because, well, it's so interesting, right? I mean, this kind of creative process, um, and it's stuffed full of creative, articulate people. And it's a nightmare because it's it's such a vast terrain. I mean, the BBC itself has broadcast um, somewhere between 10 and 20 million programmes. It's, it's impossible to put a figure on it, right? But that's a lot of programmes. So you know that if you're trying to tell the history of the BBC, you're going to be able to only reference and and tell the story of just a tiny proportion of its output, it's employed tens of thousands of people and its written archives, which I think are almost the best archives in the whole of Britain, are extraordinary because what you've got is an organization stuffed full of creative people, but it's also got a sort of temperament, a bit like kind of the the British civil service, which means that all their interesting discussions behind the scenes about why they're making programs and what they're trying to do have been captured in memos and policy papers and so on, um, which means- it's Wonderful would, for you. Wonderful, but it would take several lifetimes to kind of work through it. So, you, so again, you have to be quite selective. But but what helped me, I think, to, to achieve, I mean, what you kindly referred to as kind of a sense of being there is a kind of fairly um, underused resource in the BBC's, archives. And that's the BBC's oral history archive. Now this is something which hasn't actually been kind of terribly accessible to researchers. So what is it? In 1972, when the BBC was just 50 years old, um, and it was celebrating its 50th birthday, um, there was someone at the BBC, Frank Gillard, he'd been a wartime correspondent, and they had a party at the BBC to celebrate its 50th birthday. And he looked around at all the guests Uh, all these grand BBC figures from the past who'd been invited. And he suddenly realised that they were going to die soon and actually their memories should be captured. So in 1972, the BBC started systematically recording, uh, first of all on, on audio tape and then later on film, sustained interviews with key members of staff at the point at which they were retiring they were leaving the BBC and they were told look you can speak frankly it's not going to affect your career now you can be kind of you can be rude about people you can say you know what really happened what happened in the second world war when this happened what about the coronation of the queen tell us the inside story yes the invention of television tell us uh, you know exactly how that unfolded uh, Suez the the, the 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 Falklands war and so on and so what you have and by and large, it's been kept under lock and key is recordings of about 600 interviews with former members of staff. It could be right from the top directors general uh, and, and governors right through the program makers, uh, program makers like David Attenborough, who, you know, we tend to think of as a, you know, someone who presents natural history documentaries, but actually joined the BBC in 1952 as a a producer behind the scenes. Um, uh, uh, Engineers, secretaries, people who work in the duplicating department, and on one occasion the lift attendant. And so what you've got with these 600 interviews, and, and eight years ago I was given, you know, very lucky to be given privileged access to these, is a chance to kind of recover these human stories. Now, what you know, and these oral history interviews there, they offer a kind of ringside seat on the kind of BBC's history, and not just the BBC's history, but kind of the, the history of Britain in a way, uh, because you know, the BBC is there, the, the BBC people are there during the coronation or the war and, and so on. And they're astonishingly frank at times, but perhaps best of all, they're wonderfully atmospheric. They take you into the production office. They take you into the studio. You get very often several accounts of the same thing happening. So when it comes to General de Gaulle arriving at the BBC in 1940 uh, uh, to make his appeal to the French to to resist uh, the German occupation um, you have three or four accounts of the general arriving and, and what he's like and how he behaves and, and you know, and they, they're rather frank about the fact I that he has so. a bit of... Things yeah, that weren't
0: I mean, put down on paper.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, exactly. The thing that, for instance, that actually he was a bit tricky and he had a bit of a tantrum, you know, that he was, had a rather grand view of himself and, and what he was being allowed to do. Um, and... Yeah so, so so yes, you, you get I mean they're, they're sort of gossipy. It's the stuff that's unwritten, but also it is a genuinely informative resource because you know you you can see an event from several different perspectives and you get a sense of what it was like to be there. Um, so So you know really I, I, I suppose, what I tried to do with the book was to say, well, this is a this is a history of the BBC, and there have been histories of the BBC in the past. There's a, you know, five-volume official history, four thousand pages by Asa Briggs, wonderful thing, uh, and then there's a sixth volume, another four hundred pages. But what am I trying to do? If I'm trying to do that whole history in one book, I'm going to try and put the people center stage and and draw as much as possible on those eyewitness accounts and to try and I mean I hope it's a kind of an involved and at times emotional journey for the reader I mean I want the reader to kind of feel angry at various points or moved and upset I mean for me some of the sections on the on the Second World War I, I, I found profoundly moving as I was researching them to hear the accounts of what it was like to work at the BBC in Britain uh, during the Blitz when the BBC itself was being targeted mm-hmm. and for broadcasters to be putting their bodies on the line uh, and to be kind of trying to find a way to kind of exist and survive and to keep broadcasting on air against all odds and 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 broadcasters who were passionately committed to the, to the anti-fascist cause as well who were kind of really really believed that what they were doing in keeping going in broadcasting to occupied Europe for instance was a vital part of the war work. So you know, yeah, I do. I do want readers. I hope readers can feel, to some extent, this is not just an informative ride, but a, 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 an, an emotional ride to kind of to to live with and to walk alongside these broadcasters through the twentieth century.
0: Well, your book, um, and, and it's the BBC: A Century on the Air. Uh, you know, it's not 4,000 pages, <laughs> which, which is good. Uh, but you know, it is a, it is a, a good size book, uh, but very approachable. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it might be best at this point because we have an, a majority American audience uh, for this podcast. Uh, can you kind of explain to us kind of what is the BBC and how is it structured? Um, because here in the, in the in the states we don't, I mean we have PBS, uh, public broadcasting, uh, but it's kind of on the margins. It's on mm-hmm. the side, and so I don't think it quite uh, translates to an American audience exactly how central the BBC is. Yeah,
1: I mean I think I mean it's been said, uh, it's been said that you can't understand Britain without understanding the BBC, and it's also been said that the BBC is you have to think of it as a bit like the Church of England or parliament or the monarchy. It is almost like an organ of state, if you like. But the crucial thing about it is that even though it's like an organ of state, it feels as if it's part of the constitution, it is not a state broadcaster, nor is it a commercial broadcaster. So it is a public service broadcaster, but it's a public service broadcaster that is not funded by a kind of a generous allocation of taxpayers' money uh, by the state. Um, it's not funded by kind of fundraising. It's funded by the, the license fee, as it's called. And the license fee is something that was there right at the beginning of the BBC, which is that you have to have a license to own, a, well, in the, in the early days, a radio set, and, and later on, a TV set. And it's, it's pretty universal. In other words, pretty well every household in the country will pay their license fee. And so that goes directly to funding the BBC. Now that, what that means is it's owned by us as it were. Um, and it's also not just owned by us, but it's used by most of us. So, I mean, I, you will know better than me what proportion say of the, of the US population would be tuning into a public broadcaster in a given week.
0: Most people, some people really enjoy it, but but yeah. the majority of people are not tuning into PBS. Or yeah. or-
1: well, so so in the UK, um, in any given week, um, BBC services are used by 99% of households. <laughs> Uh, okay so and when it comes to now it, that means that in a given household someone at some point during that week will have kind of used a BBC service in some way um, and when it comes to individuals it's about 91% right so it's still a lot of people in other words uh, it's the most used news site um, it, I mean, and, and I mean there are other things you can say about the BBC it's the, it's the biggest news organisation. In the world in terms of the number of journalists it employees and the number of overseas bureaus and so on it's still uh, by some way the largest commissioner of drama in the world because it kind of has a it has dramas every day that are new and newly commissioned on the on its radio networks and so on not necessarily the same amount of money that's sloshing around to say with netflix <laughs> but but in terms of the kind of quantity of new writing and so on so so the scale of the bbc it's got it's got a budget which is in the in the several billions um, and it broadcasts internationally uh, in over 40 languages and it's got a global reach in terms of population listening and watching of somewhere between 450 and 500 million around the world so so now I mean, and that's not know. just radio today and that's not just radio it's internet and it's it's television and 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 so on now I mean the, the origins of the BBC, I think, are really important because there's something about the DNA and its ethos, which is which is important to its identity and its place within Britain, um, coming from uh, um, the ashes of World War One. Yes, so so 1922. I mean, radio as a technology is already it's been around for about 25 years by 1922, right? It's it's not brand new. But what is important in 1922 is that, you know, it's only four years after the end of the First World War, and that was a traumatic experience for, you know, for for British society. And um, a lot of people come out of the First World War despairing at civilization. You know, in other words, civilization seemed to have slipped into barbarism, uh, and this as if it was the end of progress. And there were other people who came out of the First World War thinking, well, actually, no, this is is what makes it even more important to build a new and better world. How are we going to increase mutual understanding? How are we going to kind of hold society together and end hostility between nations and and, and redeem humanity and, and, and preserve civilization? And you know one of the reasons i start the book by focusing on just three individuals three men who uh, I, I regard as the creative nucleus of the bbc in 1922 it was a very small organisation it started very very modestly who were these three men these were three men who emerged from the first world war uh, with a very uh, vague but heartfelt desire to improve the world in some way. So you have, for instance, John Reith, who becomes the, the first general manager of the BBC. And he, he's been brought up in a deeply religious household uh, in Glasgow. Um, and he's he, he come out through the war with a sort of sense of destiny. He's, you know, this religious upbringing makes makes him feel as if he's, he, he has to serve God by serving the public in some way, but he doesn't know how exactly. Um, Then there's Cecil Lewis, who's the deputy director of programs. He's only 24, Cecil Lewis, when the BBC starts. And he'd been a teenage fighter pilot in the war. And he'd looked down on the trenches below. I mean, he'd been exhilarated by flying. He kind of loved the experience, but he looked down and became increasingly despairing at the destruction he saw below and the the death and so on. And he emerges from the war thinking, how do we increase mutual understanding? How do we end this kind of hostility? And for him, it was going to be maybe through art or poetry or music, but he wasn't quite sure how. And then the third person in, in this kind of mix is Arthur Burrows. And he's the one person who does know about radio because he's worked for the Marconi company and he spent part of the war eavesdropping on ra- enemy radio propaganda, wireless propaganda. Um, and he was horrified at, at, what he, at the disinformation that he said was spreading through the ether, as he put it, like poison gas. And he thought, well, look, if, if, if this is so powerful at, at changing people's minds potentially um, in a bad way, what about using it in a good way to, to, to spread what he called a doctrine of common sense? To, to spread good information. And, and in a sense, all three of them emerge. And, and if you kind of wind together their kind of hopes and their ambitions, what you get is the kind of DNA of the BBC. And they're all, in a way, inheriting the spirit of of a Victorian writer, Matthew Arnold, who'd written a very influential book in 1869 called Culture and Anarchy. And it was still being read very widely in Britain in the years after the war. And in Culture and Anarchy, Matthew Arnold had said, look, what is going to hold society together? What is going to redeem humanity in an increasingly post-religious age? And he said, it's culture. He called it sweetness and light. And he said, it's no good just a few people having access to culture. What's going to make this work is if everyone is part of this. The task, he said, was to make sweetness and light prevail. And this idea is kind of taken up by John Reith and Cecil Lewis and Arthur Burroughs and the people who start the BBC because they see radio as the technical means to hand to achieve this grand social purpose, which is to spread good information and culture. So, you know, to, to paraphrase Reece, uh, to, to paraphrase Reith and, and Burroughs and Lewis, one of their famous articulations of this philosophy was that the task was to bring the best that has been thought and said and done to as many homes as possible. And that second part of that sentence was just as important to them as the first part. It wasn't just about, yeah, let's have a really good solid information service and news and, and culture and opera and classical music and, and the canon of literature. It was we have to bring that to as many people as possible. It has to be for everyone and it has to be for everyone equally. And, and
0: classes and demographics.
1: Yeah, so so you know, and 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 the best also was quite broadly defined um, because the thinking was you know, that the life well-lived wasn't just a life of, of virtue, it was a life of pleasure and relaxation. You know That at the end of a day's work, we needed relaxation. So entertainment was part of the mix right from the beginning. It wasn't all about kind of you know, austere uplift and so on. It was about a balanced range of programs. So right at the heart of the identity of the BBC is, it's for everyone, right? So it's important that it is a national it becomes a national broadcaster by design and by hope. Um, and, but it's bringing to everyone equally the full range of programming, not just news, but entertainment and drama and music of every kind and so on and and that's always been an important part of the BBC it's not a niche broadcaster it doesn't specialize in news
0: and I'm struck by how this is the exact opposite of what any marketing seminar would tell you today on how to market your product find your niche cater to it
1: yes And, and 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 of course that that in a sense is 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 part of the identity of the BBC is that it stands outside that kind of that commercial market sort of mentality, deliberately stands outside of it. Now, does that mean that the BBC is not interested in in audiences or ratings? No, it's always got to be interested in in ratings because it wants to bring the best to everyone. And if people are not tuning in, if people are not listening to the BBC or watching BBC programmes, then how then can it improve society? How then can it say it's leaving the world a better place than it finds it? So, so inherent in the BBC's design is not just that it becomes a kind of a national institution in order to kind of reach all corners of the land, but that it's constantly grappling, it's programme makers are grappling with how do we manage this tension between offering the good stuff, but making sure that we are not so far ahead of public taste that we leave people behind, right? So the idea was that the BBC would, would be just a little bit ahead of the public taste in the hope that it could nudge people to follow it, right? It would constantly, introduce people to, to new music and new ideas and so on, but it, it, it wouldn't be too kind of traumatic. And it would also give people some things that they liked and already were familiar with. Mm-hmm. And this, this idea has been thought about and argued about behind the scenes constantly. And and one or two people have managed to articulate, you know, what, what are they trying to do? There was a, 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 a television producer in the 1950s called Hugh Weldon who said, The BBC's goal is to make the good popular and the popular good, and that was a really neat uh, kind of encapsulation, if you like, of what the BBC was was trying to do throughout its history.
0: So kind of in a in a pragmatic sense, what did that look like in the early days? Like what kind of programs were they offering?
1: I mean, right at the beginning, they had no idea what to offer, really. And, and, and one of the things that Reith says is that when he started, they were, as he put it, no sealed orders to open. They had a blank slate. Um, they didn't get much help from the newspapers who, who insisted on a rule that the BBC could not include news bulletins until the evening. Um, so that newspaper sales weren't affected. A lot of theatres and and music companies and so on didn't want to cooperate. They were just ready to try and kill off this rival right at the beginning. And so actually the handful of producers who worked at the BBC had to kind of make things up as they went along. They did kind of sketches from shows, variety readings from books, children's programmes were there from the beginning. The BBC pretty quickly had to start assembling its own orchestras and dance bands and so on, because it didn't get cooperation from external um, companies and orchestras and so on. Um, It created its own repertory company of of actors, so it could do plays. Um, Talks were important right from the beginning, and those talks, it covered a wide range of stuff. It could be a kind of rather frothy throwaway chat about a foggy day in London or how to tin sardines or how bats sleep or it could be a, a kind of very grand um, quite difficult series of talks about economic planning from John Maynard Keynes or it could be some great literary figure talking about kind of the latest novels and so on. Um, so so it was, it was quite uh, you know quite a wide range of of stuff, music, dance, classical, talks, speech, children's, uh, and so on, it gradually obviously coheres into a sort of schedule of regular series and so on, and certainly um, within a few years, the BBC is kind of has certain sort of hit series, and in the 1930s, you have, you know, big um, comedy shows, variety shows, one of the great um, famous ones in the 1930s was In Town Tonight, it was the Saturday night variety show, a live uh, mix of celebrity guests, it would be a kind of a chimney sweep from uh, London, and then Cary Grant over from Hollywood, um, and a band playing in the studio, and and, and so on, so the, the kind of the model of the kind of
0: like what? our late night talk shows.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's, it sounds familiar, right? I mean, yeah. these, these formats were being developed in, in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and uh, I mean, what, what tends to happen then in the Second World War is it becomes absolutely vital that people are listening to the BBC. I mean, you know, the, some of the theatres are shut down and, and so on, the BBC is going to be the main resource for people to get not just up-to-date news, but, you know, to sustain the morale, and not just of people at home, but of people living in occupied Europe and, and so on. So the BBC has to learn increasingly, it has to be really agile about trying to speak to its listeners in a way that feels comfortable for them. It has to become increasingly accessible and informal and so on. You know, it starts off in 1922 as a kind of a a minority interest for predominantly middle-class people. By the 1930s, it's got a a big national audience, much more working class. uh, And the BBC has has to speak in a way that feels not too austere and forbidding for that large working-class audience. So, you know, you, there's, a, there's a steady evolution of the BBC learning to be in tune with its audience, you know, even though, even though it's not famously giving the audience exactly what they want, it is, as Reith said, giving the audience sometimes what they need. <laughs> um, challenging them a little bit yeah yeah exactly but it's it's always a mixture of both it can't be too far ahead of what the audience needs you know it has to be a balance of you know someone once said at the BBC was in the 1970s they said does the BBC lead or follow it has to do both Mm -hmm. and that again is something that distinguishes it from say commercial broadcasting or even kind of a small scale public broadcasting uh, which can, you know, I think uh, c- knows it's got a niche audience and can super serve that, that niche audience. The BBC really has got the challenge of trying to be all things to all people. Um, and, and in a way, that is what makes it so interesting to the historian. You know?
0: So, you know, within a, a short span of less than 20 years, we go from this uh, startup to uh, you know something that's really considered essential and indispensable in the Second World War. Um, what was the BBC doing during World War II that made it this essential critical service for, for people living in the UK?
1: Well, I think first of all, it's important that it was seen now to be a, a vital source of news and information. So that was partly that you know the, the government, as it were, had information it needed to get to the to the to, the, to the, as many people as possible. Information about rationing, about air raids, about uh, what they should do, about how they needed to come up with new recipes. You know, if, if food wasn't available, um, uh, and and so on. So there was kind of public information that had to had to reach people. And and now the government weren't very good at this. I mean, the government would kind of tend to be a bit hectoring, and they'd kind of say, "Right, this is what you've got to do: pull your socks up, um, you know, <laughs> cook with these miserable bits of vegetables, and, and not what you usually do." Do you
0: think?
1: Yeah, and this wasn't very successful. The BBC was stuffed full of people who knew how to make radio programs that were a bit more inviting and accessible. So there was a bit of a struggle at the beginning of the war when the BBC was trying to kind of say to the government, look, It's no good, you know, these government officials going on air and just sort of basically shouting at people. What we need to do is to make this entertaining. And so they 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 drew on their skills as broadcasters to kind of create comedy characters uh, or entertaining programs that would in a much more subtle way, dispense advice on on how to build a air raid shelter or how to cook food with with odd ingredients and so on. So there was that kind of and that wasn't just about providing good information. What the BBC managed to do with that was that it managed to make the civilian population feel as if they, too, were part of the war effort. That you know that, that everything that they did wasn't just about coping with loss, but it was actually about helping to win the war in some way. So it was connected with the broader mission of morale boosting. And some of that involved comedy and music and escape from the war, if you like. So one of the great famous comedy series that the BBC put out during the war was, was called Itmar, which stood for It's That Man Again. And it was a kind of collection of comic characters, but what really made the the series popular was that it, it actually kind of poked fun at the pomposity of officialdom. It, it, it provided a kind of release valve, if you like, for people who are fed up with being told what to do and to and for uh, blacking out the windows to, to stop light from leaking during the the bombing attacks uh, and so on. So you know, there was comedy as, as escape. There was another um, series that was very popular during the war called Music While You Work. And that was against all traditional notions from the BBC of what would be a good proper music show. You know, producers were brought up to believe that, what well, the important thing in a music show is that it was the music was carefully chosen. It was varied. It was introduced properly, it's curated. There would be an explanation of, its, of who made it and who composed it and so on. Music While You Work was uh, on twice a day, just half an hour of non-stop, regular, rhythmic music. And it was piped into munitions factories around the country. And the idea was, it wasn't so much that it would kind of up the tempo of work, but it would just give morale a lift a couple of times a day when, when you know, her effort was flagging a little bit. Um, and it and it was incredibly popular among factory workers because it was a kind of a sing-along moment, if you like, that made this war work more bearable. And people at you home loved any it. shop but, today, it's like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 people at home listened to it, and the people at home listened to it knowing that their friends and colleagues and family members in the factories were listening to it. So it kind of it was a sort of nation-binding moment. So, so the BBC. You know, the BBC was officially under kind of government control during the war because it was a national emergency mm-hmm. but it, 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 it very quickly kind of exerted its own sort of rights as it were as the experts in broadcasting to kind of work out how is this going to work how is this going to work we're not going to just become boring and austere and tell people what to do we're going to actually try and you know uh, make this human <laughs> in some way and The other thing that is important to stress is that the BBC always was conscious that it was now an international broadcaster. It wasn't just about the home audience. Um, You know, 22 allied nations, um, the the, the old British Empire and so on and and America. So there was the the BBC's North American service, um, Mm. which which provided um, programs to the US and to Canada. um, And uh, was especially active when there were there were US and Canadian troops stationed in in Britain. There were services for them, uh, and of course broadcasts to to Europe, occupied Europe. Forty six languages being broadcast in Europe alone by the end of the war. Some twenty million people in Europe listening to the BBC. And that and, has, and, I'm sorry. Um, yes. I some strategic I mean, value. And yeah, and so so. I mean, from the BBC and the the British government's point of view, it was about um, trying to provide accurate information about the course of the war. Now, again, there was a bit of tension here between the BBC and the government because the government saw radio as the means of getting information to listeners in Europe. Um, but their inclination was to kind of, you know, suppress some <laughs> military defeats um, and to kind of exaggerate maybe the successes. Now, the BBC knew that people would only carry on listening if they trusted the BBC and to be trusted, they had to be as honest as they could about military setbacks as well as victories. Now the BBC couldn't always tell the full truth because there were certain bits of information that had to be you know, kept secret, okay. but it would try to avoid untruths. Um, and, and it was really important I think in the first half of the war if the BBC could prove to its listeners in Europe, not just kind of say in occupied France, but actually listeners in enemy nations, I mean, German listeners, for instance, if they could prove that you know, the, to risk your life, tuning into the BBC um, would allow you access to accurate, more accurate information than you're getting from say Nazi radio, Then, in the later stages of the war, when actually the Allies were on the offensive more, then it would kind of come into its own. It would be even more useful for lots of people to be listening. So there was there was that. Now there was another much more secret layer to what was going on in the broadcasting to Europe in the war, and that was that woven into the BBC's broadcasts to Europe were secret coded messages. Now, what that means is that uh, the BBC w- received from uh, military intelligence uh, in, in the UK, a series of coded messages, strange phrases, for instance, that would just be slotted into the script of programmes broadcast to Europe. And these messages would send information to resistance fighters or to special operation executive members, in other words, British agents who were on the ground, um, uh, to give information about the, the state of a, um, a sabotage action or, or, or whatever, and there were something like 50 to 100 of these messages a week going out to Europe uh, that encouraged acts of resistance and sabotage and so on. Um, but but it, was a, it was a complicated business because, you know, the, the, you, the BBC had to learn what was the kind of broadcasting that would work? If you're broadcasting to Germany, in, 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 in German, how could you get people who might be suspicious of Britain and British Broadcasting to be listening? And they thought, you know, long and hard, they, they, they sifted carefully the information that was coming back from Europe. Um, they would, for instance, on the BBC's German service, they decided that it was extremely useful to include the names of captured German personnel, because that was a way way of encouraging the families of those German, uh, you know, military personnel to tune in, because they'd be keen to know, you know, is my son alive or dead, you know, is he a prisoner of war, and so on. Um, They learnt to broadcast programmes, uh, that targeted working class listeners uh, in in Germany, not just the kind of uh, you know the, the 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 elite. They wanted lots of people to be listening. Um, the the broadcasts of friend to to France were complicated by the fact that the BBC shared its transmission times, not just with its own French service, but with De Gaulle and his his team of kind of exiled French. They had a a, a sort of nightly slot on the BBC's transmitters and they were kind of uh, rather gung-ho and and encouraging kind of rebellion and and uprising and so on. Whereas the BBC was a little bit more restrained and they were getting lots of messages from the UK government to say, look, there's not going to be a a second front. There's not going to be an invasion, D-Day is not yet here yeah. and actually the, the task of the BBC was to kind of lower expectations um, and, and to instill patience as they put it amongst French citizens so um, in it, 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 its extraordinarily rich history of broadcasters grappling with, a determination they, they, you know they were all on the side as it were they wanted to win the war this wasn't about kind of neutrality in some way um, but but using and learning learning so much about listener tastes and what worked and you know trying constantly to the, set the BBC apart from pure propaganda it was about The BBC trying to kind of, as it were, provide an example to embody kind of democratic principles in terms of uh, varied viewpoints, argument, debate, but essentially a commitment to kind of democracy. So, So there was a lot going on in those broadcasts to Europe at the same time as that really important work that the BBC had to do on the home front.
0: So the the, the war uh, part of the book I, I found particularly interesting. That was that was fascinating history there. Um, after the war, though, um, you know, the, how does the BBC handle? Um, you know, because the, the UK, just like the US, is changing a lot in those post-war years. You've got social change. Uh, in the case of of Britain, you ha- you're you're dealing with uh, decolonization. Um, how does the BBC factor into, into that shifting, uh, shifting listenership?
1: I think it's possible to look at that post-war era and to kind of see that in many respects, the BBC, the BBC is not necessarily at its best in the 1950s. I think it's possible to say that. So, so it comes out of the war with a kind of massive, hugely boosted international reputation um and as kind of central to British life. Um, But what you've also got, I think, is, you know, there's a there's a there's a delicate line between a a sense of achievement and a kind of sense of complacency. And and in in the BBC you're right, you've got a a, you know a changing Britain. And you've also got at the BBC a sort of a pre-war generation still at work um, in terms of program making and so on. And it's possible. Certainly when it comes to the issue of kind of Britain's increasingly multicultural identity. Um, you know, I mean, Britain has long been a multicultural uh, nation, not, you know, well before the war. But, you know, you have um, larger scale immigration, particularly from India, Pakistan, and from the Caribbean. And and this is a moment where you would expect the BBC to kind of serve public understanding, in other words, to kind of introduce the new communities to the old communities, introduce them to each other. The BBC is a little bit uh, tentative about this and a little bit slow, and I think it, that's largely because know the reality is this is an organization where there are very 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 few people of color say who were working for it in any influential program making departments it 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 is as it were largely blind to the issues of kind of multiculturalism in 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 the late 40s and and the 1950s it does have if you go through the program archive there were plenty of programs about immigration say Um, uh, that in a very sincere way tried to explore the issue of of racism and prejudice. But the kind of cumulative effect of a lot of these programmes was to kind of constantly talk about Britain's new arrivals as in some sense a problem a problem for the host community in some way Um, and it, it was a very long time I think before the BBC you know actually had that sort of very different approach which was actually to kind of think about what could Britain learn from its new arrivals rather than what should Britain tell its new arrivals about how they had to behave. There's something about the BBC I think that kind of explains this which is that and it goes back to what we were talking about in the 1920s, which is, you know, if the BBC has sort of got at its heart this idea about trying to kind of, as it were, heal the nation, to hold society together. It's got a sort of natural aversion to pointing out differences. It kind of likes to slightly paper over the cracks, if you like, and and, and, and draw attention to the good stuff. And sometimes that doesn't serve it, serve it well because it, it it tends to play down you know some of those kind of demanding and important issues that divide us um, and uh, certainly then I mean we might say that much more recently broadcasting embraces <laughs> uh, division and argument and, and and so on and draws attention to difference and so on yeah. But, true. But, but I mean, certainly then, I think that we were dealing with a BBC that was more comfortable with consensus than with difference. Uh, and, and, and I mean, if, but again, you know, the BBC, this is an organisation that is, is producing a vast amount of output. You know, it's got many radio uh, ch- channels and, and it's TV and it's, you know, and, and so on. In lots of different languages, it's global broadcaster. How can we characterize its total output? We've got to be very, very careful. And you know, there's a, there was a, a, a wonderful radio series that the BBC put out in 1964, uh, where the producer at the BBC collaborated with Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes, you know, established famous Harlem poet, um, he'd worked with the BBC during the Second World War uh, and he had a very close relationship with a BBC producer called Jeffrey bridson who was a, a jazz enthusiast and a poet and a radical, politically. And they collaborated on a, on a series of 19 programmes that went out on the BBC in 1964, which, which explored the whole history and the present day uh, status of the kind of African American civil rights movement, African American culture, music, art, poetry, politics, and so on. And it was a kind of, you know, fantastic example, if you like, of the BBC uh, really trying to kind of take seriously and explore in detail and at scale an important contemporary problem. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that the BBC found it easier to, to look at the, Ameri- uh, the African-American civil rights movement than it did sometimes to look at the problems of race within Britain itself. Um, so, I mean, there's an irony there, but also an indication that this was a BBC that was always trying, often imperfectly, to, to, to grapple with, with difficult issues.
0: All right. Well, uh, David, I've really enjoyed this discussion. This was, this was a lot of fun. Uh, If you could take a moment to, if somebody's really interested in this, um, I know we kind of just covered the highlight reel of what's in the book. You know, if they want to learn more about those things, where can they get a copy of your book?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess I would say in all good bookshops, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Independent Uh, sure. Yeah, independent bookshops uh, and, uh, you know, the usual, uh, the usual online outlets, if that's what people want. Uh, But uh, yeah, some, you know, good independent bookshops should, should, should stock it. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's obviously hundreds of aspects of the BBC's history that we haven't, we haven't touched on. Um, And what can I say, read the book if you want to find out more. Mm -hmm. There is something that I think, is accessible to outside the UK, which is an online resource. And that's um, something called 100 Voices That Made the BBC. So if people wanted to Google 100 Voices That Made the BBC, they'd reach a website which is on the BBC. uh, And it's something I I worked with the BBC to, to, to write and create. And that's got loads, hundreds of clips from program archives, and from the oral history collection that I mentioned, Um, and essays, short blog style essays about um, early television, the BBC during wartime, the BBC in the Cold War, entertainment, uh, pioneering women at the BBC. Um, There's a section called People, Nation, Empire, which looks at the issue of the BBC and multiculturalism and so on. So it's, it's, it's rich in terms of its documents, its archives, its program material, its clips, its interviews and so on. And and as I understand it, that uh, even though it's a BBC service funded by the license fee payer, I think it is accessible globally. So I'm hoping very much that that people can have a look at that. Uh, And if they have any real questions that they want to ask, they can track me down and drop me an email and I will try my best to respond.
0: Do you have a website?
1: I don't don't have a website, but um, I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Sussex in England. And so if people were to Google David Hendy, University of Sussex, there is a kind of web page there which uh, tells you a bit more about the work I'm doing uh, and allows you to see my email address. And um, I can I will try my best to respond to any inquiries.
0: All right. Well, David Hendy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us
1: today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. The BBC with David Hendy. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day uh, to listen to this show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. A big thank you to David for taking the time to talk with me about his book. Uh, What a wealth of knowledge and what what a a fun and interesting guy to talk to. Uh, If you would like to learn more about the BBC, uh, I have a link to his book, uh, the BBC, A Century on the Air. The link is down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. I'm not kidding when I say that today we covered maybe three or four chapters of of the book. There's a a wealth of more material in there. Uh, So I definitely encourage you to check that out. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I hope that I'll see you guys again uh, next week. Uh, We'll be looking at some legends of King Arthur. And then a little bit further down the road, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, author Mark Lee Gardner. uh, And we are going to talk about... um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Chief Sitting Bowl uh, and the Sioux Nation and the Lakotas. So uh, I hope you'll stick with me for a couple weeks. Got some great stuff coming down the line. All right. Until then, have a great week.